We'll pick up now right where we left off. Um, the last verse we looked at was verse 14. It was a Sabbath, the day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. You're not supposed to make mud on the Sabbath. He did. On purpose. Remember, Adam was formed from the mud, from the soil. So he takes that humanity, that he, which he has himself now, and touches this man, and he sees. Again, the Pharisees also asked him how he began to see. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How could a sinful man do signs such as these? Our Lord's whole point was to get them to think, Who is this person? You see? And there was a division among them. And again now, they go back to um, uh, ask the sinful man, all of the, the blind man, all over again. Then they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because it was your eyes that he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe regarding him that he was blind and acquired sight until they called his parents of the one who acquired sight. And they asked them, Is this your son? The one you say was born blind? How then does he see now? Now, the essay in this is what? The hopelessness and the helplessness of darkness. The light of the world is right there, just manifesting himself by healing even the physical eyes of this blind man. And they refuse to see. That's the blind man. You close the eyes of your heart on Jesus, you will walk around in darkness. Because he's the light of the world. And so you see, uh, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he see now? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. How he sees now, we don't know. And who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already decided that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be out of the synagogue. Now, uh, this is a difficult text historically. When was the decree uh, of... Uh, expelling the, the Christians from the synagogue. There was a gathering at Yamnia after the fall of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem, Jerusalem fell in the year 70. And so, after the year 70, down in Yamnia were those who had survived the Roman siege of the city and everybody who tried to escape was caught, was crucified. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of crosses all over the, the land outside the city. But some of the, the rabbis managed to escape, and they're down in Yamnia. 
And uh, somewhere down there, uh, there was this decree. We don't have the decree, but we can presume that it was there. Or, which is more likely, uh, in the benedictions, these uh, Shmoni Yitzri, the 18 benedictions, there was a, another benediction inserted, which was a curse on the Minim, a curse on the heretics, meaning mostly the Christian. So if I'm a Christian man and I'm standing there in the synagogue and it comes time to recite the uh, blessings of the the Berachot, I'm not going to be able to say this one about curse all the heretics. I'm one. My brother's one. So all they had to do was watch and see who wouldn't say that one and they knew who the Christians were. And that's probably how they tried to weed them out and then expel them from the synagogue. Um, now part of that has to be historical reconstruction because we don't have enough evidence to uh, say that's absolutely what happened. We do know that there was this curse of the Minim, the heretics, put into the 18 blessings, the Shemoni Yetzirah, at a certain point. But we don't know when. Some people want to be able to say that this is sort of an upgrading. It wasn't in Jesus' time that they had decided this. When they did decide it, it was put in, or then written. And we know that this was somewhere in the early 70s, so we know when the final form of this text was written. However, we don't know about that. For the Jews had already decided that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be out, out of the synagogue. It's hard for us to imagine this, as it is the excommunication of the church. Because we all live in the city, we're mixed up with everybody else. You know, we used to be like little enclaves of believers in the city. <clears throat> if you were excommunicated, out you went. Well, <clears throat> it was such a privilege and a joy to have all your neighbors Christian and to know how they were bringing up their children, to know you could trust them, to know you could look for them to, to them for help. And now you were taken out of that. That's what excommunication means. You're out of the communion of the community. It's hard to, the only way you can, the only thing left in excommunication is the Eucharist. So somebody excommunicated should not be going to the Eucharist because they're, they're not worshiping with the community anymore. But you can see uh, in, in a small, sort of small town culture like this, and where everybody kind of knew everybody, if you were put out of the synagogue, it was over for you. You had to go live somewhere else, you see. And the church picked that up and had excommunication. Why? Paul says about the Christians, let this fellow go back out to his old neighborhood and see what a living hell it is compared to living with your brothers and sisters. Nowadays, as I say, you know, we live on 4th Street with everybody else and 3rd Street. and So... The only one place where this thing takes place is at the church on Sunday in receiving the Eucharist. In the Byzantine rite, uh, as you probably know, this is right after the creed, there's two things you have to do. It says, as it says in, in the first letter of John, chapter 3, 
His commands are that we have to believe and love one another. So that's what makes a Christian. Believe and love. Everybody. Okay. Everybody among the Christians, at least. Okay. So, in the Byzantine rite, there's a moment when the priest sings out, the doors, the doors, let us attend in wisdom. And everybody who's not a believer or who's in a state of sin and can't receive communion, they go. Now, that would be so embarrassing for us Anglo-Saxons. But they go. I'm by ritual. I've seen them go. Sometimes they go glaring at a guy that's because of you I'm going. You know, I mean, it's not all pious in a way. But they're cut off. There's nothing worse than being cut off from living with Christians. We don't realize that anymore because the culture runs the risk or we run the risk of letting the culture overtake the faith. We could go to our parish church and except for a couple of friends not know anybody there. That cultural weakness has got to be fixed. Anyway, you see, in this culture, it wouldn't happen because they have this process of cursing everybody who is, is a heretic. Well, if I'm, you know, heretic means believe in Jesus. So I believe in Jesus. And so does my cousin right next to me. How am I going to say, you know, cast all the heretics into hell? I'm one. So I won't say anything. But where else am I going to go? The Christians are not strong enough to have their own groups for the most part, though they did have some. So all you had to do was watch who didn't say that curse and you knew where the Christians were. Out you go. Uh, okay. Uh, so our text says then, for this reason his parents said, he is of age, question him. Because they didn't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. And so they said that. Now that's as far as I want to go. That's verse 23 of uh, this 50 or 41 rather uh, verses in this uh, 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 chapter. And we'll do the rest of them next week. Uh, but I want to reflect a bit on things that were so meaningful and maybe meaningful again, but don't make much of an impact. First place, how many people are dying to get to Mass on Sunday? Some go, some don't go. Now, there's a good reason. You have sick children at home, you're not supposed to go. Uh, but if you don't, it's a mortal sin. Because to have a mortal sin, you need serious matter, sufficient reflection, and full consent of the will. The only safeguard now is the sufficient reflection. Most people are not re re reflecting sufficiently on anything. Just going along, turn on the TV, spend the whole afternoon watching the NFL, vegetating. But it's a terrible thing to be cut off from the community because Christ lives there. And it's such a beautiful thing when a neighborhood or a community get together and share Christ. And that's what 
is being threatened here, you see. If anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be out of the synagogue. Uh, so, you see that this enlightenment has consequences. If we continue to profess that we are enlightened and things continue to go badly, it may have a serious effect on our lives. Are you a Christian? Yes. Okay. In the paddy wagon. It could be that. That's why our Lord, in so many ways, including this return of the church to Scripture, is getting us ready for what could be very difficult. Uh, and so, you see, this story is not just a story. Who is this blind beggar on trial? this healed blind beggar. It's you. It's me. I'm on trial. The minute I say I'm a Christian, I'm on trial. Uh, because uh, I stand for something that's being rejected. How do I handle myself? Love. And be able to give a reason for the hope that is in me, as it says in First Peter. But do it gently. Do it politely. Don't be in an argument. Is that hard? Yes. But suppose you win somebody over and they become baptized and a member of the body of Christ. Isn't it worth it? You see, they have come in living experiential contact with the light of the world. 